Genesis chapter 25, uh, verses 19 through 34. And it has been a while since we last studied in the book of Genesis together. So as we jump back into this book today, before we move forward, let's make sure that we remember uh, the big picture of where we are, what's been going on, and what we're learning in this book. The word Genesis means beginnings. And in this first book of the Bible, we see the beginnings of the universe, uh, this world and everything in it, including mankind. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And then down later, and God saw everything he had made, and behold, it was very good. Until it wasn't. In this book of beginnings, we also see the beginning of sin. As Adam and Eve chose to reject the loving lordship of God and go their own way. In the fall, we saw the beginnings of everything that is wrong in this world. Sickness, uh, disease, hate, lust, death. And we saw the beginnings of God's gracious plan to redeem for himself a people. Even as God spoke the curse that came on this world as a result of sin, he promised that one day the seed of the woman would crush the head of that serpent, the evil serpent, the devil, appointing forward to our Savior, Jesus Christ, his death on the cross for our sin. As mankind reproduced and expanded, so did their sin. So much so that God chose to judge the world, all mankind, save one man and his family. In Genesis 6, verse 8, it says that Noah found favor. He received unmerited favor, grace from God. God didn't look at Noah and go, well, that guy's perfect. I'll save him. No, Noah needed saving, and God showed him grace and his family. So Noah and his wife and their three sons and their wives were saved from God's judgment, saved from God's just wrath uh, through the ark. And God promised, God promised to not judge the people of the world for their sin through a worldwide flood again. And he used, as a sign for that promise, to not judge sin through that flood, a rainbow. And then, after that, everything was just fine, right? Well, no. No, after God told man to be fruitful and multiply and spread out all over the world, they decided to make a new name for themselves, a new God who wouldn't tell them to do that, and they built a tower to worship it and, and so that they would never have to leave, never have to spread out. And so God graciously intervened again. He confounded their languages, and the building project ended, and off they went. So far, in the book of Genesis, we've had this pattern. God does something good, and then man sins. And then God does the right thing. And then man sins some more. And then God responds. And man sins. And God intervenes. And man continues to sin. Do you get the pattern? Do you see what's happening here? Uh, so far, none of these interventions have eradicated the problem. And it's not as though God was, was up in heaven trying to fix the problem, take another stab at it, and then every time it just didn't work. Ah, stink. Got to go back to the drawing board, I guess. Now, that's not how that works. That's not how it worked. God was not in shock when Noah sinned after getting off the ark. 
But as we read these accounts, as we read these accounts of early history, what do we learn? Will man perform well, well enough, in a better environment? If man just had a better environment, would that make him good? No. Will man be without sin if all the other people and all that negative peer pressure is gone? No. Will man finally do the right thing if if God just spreads them out? Is isolation from the rest of the world the answer? No. We are learning that our problem is not outside of us. And the solution is not inside of us. If we're ever going to get back to the way things were in the garden, we're going to need a better solution. It's going to have to be God's solution. And at this point in the book of Genesis, this book of beginnings, as God begins to reveal the beginnings of his plan for our redemption and salvation, the narrative now focuses in on one of the descendants of Noah and Mrs. Noah's son, Shem. And that descendant's name is Abram, later Abraham. And in Abraham, we see the beginnings, the genesis of the people of Israel. Remember, even, even though these stories, these narratives, had probably been shared orally in some way throughout the previous generations of Israel's existence, the actual God-inspired, written-down book of Genesis, it was written by Moses after the exodus from Egypt. And as this book of beginnings is presented to the people of Israel, as they read or hear the word of God, in that time, in that context, they are learning who they are. They're learning their roots, their ancestry, their beginnings, their purpose. And they are learning, and we get to learn reading over their shoulder, learning more about who their God is, who he is, what their relationship to him is, what he has done, what he's promising to do. So they see God graciously take a man named Abram from the city of Ur, a center of worship for a false god. And God tells this Abram, who would have lived a life of pagan worship had it not been for the grace of God, God says to Abram, I will make of you a great nation. God says to Abram, I will bless those who bless you and curse those who curse you. I will bless you and make your name great. God promised Abram that his descendants would be a great multitude as the stars in the heavens. That from Abraham's seed, all the nations of the earth would be blessed. And Abraham, it says, believed God. He believed God. And it says God counted it to him as righteousness. Abraham didn't possess his own righteousness. God counted righteousness to Abraham. God granted righteousness to Abraham by grace through faith. And even after Abraham tried to produce his own son, his own heir, and he tried to do it his own way, man's way. And by the way, keep that idea in mind. God making a promise, and man trying to see that promise come to fruition through his own planning, his, his own efforts. 
we might see that pattern repeat again real soon, like today. Okay, but even when Abraham's wife Sarah was well beyond childbearing age, and when Abraham was, as the book of uh, Hebrews calls him, as good as dead. There's a great uh, descriptive phrase that we'd all love to hear about ourselves, right? As good as dead. Abraham was 100 years old. So in a way that no man could give credit to Abraham or Sarah, in a way that everyone would have to know that it was God's doing, God gave them a son, Isaac. And it's this family of Isaacs where we pick back up in this grand narrative of the book of Genesis. So here in Genesis chapter 25, starting in verse 19, we see these first six words. These are the generations of Isaac. Uh, Throughout the book of Genesis, that language, these are the generations of, these statements serve as chapter markings. Moses didn't write Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19. Uh, people, people add those markers later. But the way things were broken down in word form, in a way that would catch the eye or would stick out in the ear of the one listening, was this phrase, these are the generations of. And in this instance, the generations of Isaac. So we know that the following unit is going to tell us what becomes of Isaac's family. So in this series of messages, Sunday mornings, uh, we're going to focus in on the next 11 chapters or so, Genesis 25 to 36. Uh, which gives us the account of Isaac's sons, uh, amongst other things, but specifically Jacob and Esau. So, you ready? Verse 19, let's get to it. Twenty-five, nineteen. These are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. Abraham fathered Isaac, and Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, the Aramean of Paddan Aram, and the sister of Laban, remember that name, Laban the Aramean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife, because she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So just to start with some helpful observations, uh, some helpful observations from these verses, even though none of the people in this passage today are without fault, they all needed saving just like you and me. But I think it'd be good to acknowledge that Isaac did do a good thing here. Isaac did a good thing here. Uh, When Abraham, remember when Abraham was waiting on the promise of God, waiting for that son of promise, when it seemed like Sarah was just never going to get pregnant, they sought their own plan a couple of times. Abraham tried to suggest one of his servants, Eliezer, uh, and God said, no, 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 you're going to have a son of your own. And then Sarah gave Abraham her servant Hagar, and they, Abraham and Hagar, had Ishmael together. And God said, nope, Abraham was going to have a son with Sarah. Isaac was going to be the son that God promised. And now, Isaac, in the midst of this 20 years, we'll find out, this 20 years of waiting on the Lord, is is still going to the correct source of the solution. God had made a promise, and Isaac is going to God in prayer for the solution. He's trusting in God to see it through. Also, just can, can you imagine Rebecca? Rebecca leaves her home, hearing her family bless her. In Genesis twenty four sixty, they said to her as she was leaving, May you become thousands of ten thousands, and may your offspring possess the gates of those who hate them. And then, arriving to learn of this promise of offspring to the descendants of Abraham, her new father-in-law, 
that will number as the stars in the heavens and the grains of sand by the seashore. And then with all those thoughts of children, maybe upon children, upon children, grandchildren, great-grandchildren, what did Rebecca get? For the next 20 years, barrenness. Maybe not what she expected. But later on in this chapter, we see that Isaac is 60 when the boys are born. He married it when he was 40, and the boys are born when he's 60. And, and oh, by the way, in a culture at that time that really showed how blessed you were by how many kids you could have, Ishmael had 12 sons. So there's this contrast as well. Now, in this second generation of barrenness, Sarah and then Rebecca, again, God is showing who the giver of life is. Man is not accomplishing the fulfillment of God's promises. Man is not accomplishing the fulfillment of God's promises. God's doing it. And he's doing it on his time, according to his schedule, and not ours. Isaac was right to pray. God is sovereign. And God does not need man's help to get his plans across the finish line. God's going to do what he's promised to do. And we know this too. God works all things together for the good of those who love him. Those who are called according to his purpose. His purpose. To conform us to the image of his son. God promises this to us. Now verse 22. The children struggled together within her. And this word for struggle, it refers to a violent out of the ordinary struggling. The Hebrew word means to oppress or to crush. So Rebecca was not sitting quaintly in a rocking chair, maybe on the front porch next to Isaac, smiling at each other, putting his hand on her tummy so they could smile and, and feel the baby's kick. Ooh, did you feel that? That is not what was happening, okay? There was no need to ask Isaac if he could feel the movement. There was a battle raging in her womb. And so she said, If it is thus... Why is this happening to me? Translation, if this is how this is going to be, I'm not so sure I knew what I was signing up for here. What is going on? And so she went to inquire of the Lord. And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other. The older shall serve the younger. They're still in the womb. The older shall serve the younger. The heads of the nations of Israel and Edom were in her belly. And they were already at war. And Israel was going to win. Neither of them has been born, neither has seen the light of day, neither one of them have made a single conscious decision. And God has decreed this. Jacob, the younger, has been chosen as the heir. He would receive the blessing, Abraham's blessing, passed down to Isaac, and soon to be passed down not to Esau, man's way of doing things. But to Jacob, God has chosen. The ancient Near East custom 
a man's way of doing things, would have been to see the firstborn as the heir. That's just how we do it. That's how it always is. He would have received the attention, the training. He would be prepared for the responsibility. He would receive the double portion of the inheritance. This was man's way. This was the custom. One of those things where we see God say something to us in Scripture, we go, but why? That can't mean that. You know, often when we see those things in Scripture, uh, usually when the Apostle Paul writes them in the book of Romans or something like that, it just says right after that, now don't say. Now here's the answer to the question you just asked yourself. Because we do that, don't we? We can read in the Old Testament and see the ancient Near East customs and go, oh, well, they just didn't know that God was doing things different. Bless their heart. But we forget. We don't share their customs, but we have our own. We have customs. And there are ways where we might read the scripture and just not assume at all that God would mean that. And we need to be careful that we don't do the same. Because God says in Isaiah 55, 8 and 9, My thoughts are not your thoughts. Neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth... uh, By the way, how far are the heavens higher than the earth? Anybody got an idea? I don't either. I'm thinking it's more than I think. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. We know this. God is eternal. God is eternal. He sees and and knows all things in all eternity. Jesus said, before Abraham was, I am. Am, he could just as easily have said, after the great white throne, after the new heavens, new earth, and Jerusalem, way out in the eternity future, I am. God is eternal. He is all-knowing, and his perfect knowledge of all things exists in his eternality. He is all-knowing of all things in all times in himself. He is all-powerful. He is without sin. That's good news, especially after those first three attributes. He is without sin. He is perfectly good. He is entirely perfectly good, entirely perfectly righteous. He is the creator of all things and the sustainer of all things. Things exist because he said so, and things continue to exist because he says so. His ways are not our ways. He's got a different perspective, yes? His ways are not our ways. And he doesn't have to act in ways that make the most sense to us. He doesn't have to apologize for what he does. He doesn't have to prepare a defense. He does not have to plan to answer to our accusations. He is God. We are his creation. Listen to these verses from 1 Corinthians chapter 1. The Apostle Paul writes, For consider your calling, brothers. Who called who? Consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, 
Why? God chose. God chose. God chose. Why? Verse 29, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus. Because of who? Him. Because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption. I am not righteous. Christ is my righteousness. Christ is my sanctification. Christ is our redemption, Christians. So that, as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. Uh, This passage today in Genesis 25, along with many others in Scripture, presents to us the doctrine of election. That God, as it says in Hebrews 1-4, chose us in Him, in Christ, before the foundation of the world. The Apostle Paul refers to this very event of God's choosing between Jacob and Esau in Romans 9. And I'll start reading there in Romans 9, verse 6, uh, where Paul is answering the hypothetical question, why aren't all the Jews saved? And he says, starting in verse 6, but it is not as though the word of God has failed. This doesn't make sense to me. Did God fail? My ways are not your ways. It is not as though the word of God has failed. For not all who are descended from Israel, the nation of Israel, belong to Israel, the remnant. And not all are children of Abraham because they're his offspring. But through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh who are the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said. And quoting from Genesis, this time next year I'll return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah, so now we're entering into our passage today from Genesis 25. When Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad, in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told, The older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? That's one of those places where the Apostle Paul knows by the inspiration of the Spirit that there's going to be a question here. Whoa! He says, what shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will... I have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. And we'll see that's actually good news. If it wasn't for God's mercy, where would we be? We see that word hated. Hated. Esau, I hated. And it doesn't just, it doesn't want to compute, right? It just doesn't sound or feel right to us. But this word translated as hated is being used the same way that Jesus uses it in Luke 14 in verse 26, where he says this of his disciples, Christians, that'd be us. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. And I don't think Jesus was telling us to be, to be hateful or to despise or loathe our parents or, or our spouses or our families or anybody else. 
We'd be violating much of Ephesians 5 and 6 and all kinds of other scriptures if that were the case. And the Bible's not going to contradict itself. The word hated is being used here as a choosing of one over the other for this purpose. If I have to choose between my earthly father and Jesus, I must choose Jesus. And God, in his sovereign purposes, chose Jacob. And he did not choose Esau. They say, but, or and. We also know this. God has given man a will. And no one, no one goes to hell who has not rejected God. That's Romans 1. And as we'll see in just a few verses, Esau here will willingly despise what people might have said God should have been given to him instead of Jacob. Esau's going to willingly despise, choose against God. Now, that could be a serious tangent here. Covering, covering the doctrine of election would be a huge path to go down. We could talk about that for a long, long time. And when you figure all that out, let me know, okay? We see these truths in Scripture, though. We know what God has revealed to us. But the, the point in bringing it up is to make sure that we understand in the context of Genesis 25, God chose Jacob. Jacob was going to be the heir. Jacob was going to be the son of promise in this generation who would carry on God's promise uh, that he gave to Abraham and to all of us eventually in Christ through this line. And since God has decreed this, there wasn't anything Jacob could do to earn it. It was already settled before he was even born. That's grace. Unmerited favor. Jacob didn't have to struggle. He didn't have to be tricky. Rebecca didn't have to scheme for her son. He was never going to be able to earn the blessing and the birthright. He would never be able to earn God's favor. He tried anyway. And he didn't get it because he tried. Now think about this. If, if I think that I can lose my salvation because I sinned, then how did I get it in the first place? By not sinning? But I can't even say that I've done that. This is of grace. This is of grace. And it has to be. Because I couldn't earn it. And I won't have done enough to earn it after I got it. We see this in this narrative of Jacob. He tried. In the next several weeks, we'll see him trying to earn this. And in his efforts to earn this, in his efforts to earn what had already been given to him by God's gracious choice, in the effort he's wrestling, he's struggling against God. Against God. And it will be so important for us to understand uh, this as we move forward in this section of the book of Genesis. Jacob didn't become the father of Israel because he was a schemer and a trickster. Jacob didn't become the father of Israel because he gave Esau this stew in the next passage. Jacob didn't become Israel and he didn't receive God's grace for salvation because later on in life he got spiritual and figured it out. Jacob received the blessing by God's grace. Jacob received salvation by God's gracious, gracious choice. God showed him mercy. God showed him grace. 
period. Jacob will get this birthright, this blessing, all of it, in spite of his sinful, selfish efforts, not because of them. All our self-styled, self-produced righteousness, when we stack it up in an effort to earn ourselves a spot in heaven, all of that, the Bible says, is filthy rags. Remember, we learned this from Matthew 7. Jesus said, Many, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not? And then they'll, they'll share all of their amazing, righteous deeds. And what will Jesus say? Depart from me, workers of lawlessness. Lawlessness. These are people who are trying to do good, and, and it's lawlessness. Our, quote-unquote, righteous deeds, doing things that are considered good, so that we will stack up to our expectation. That bar is always going to move, by the way. Stacking up to our expectation of what God should expect from us. So now who's in charge? To let us into heaven. Our righteous deeds, doing all that are, we consider to be good, so that we will stack up to our expectation of what God should expect from us, so he'll let us into heaven. If that's our mindset, all of that work, all those righteous deeds are sin. They are wrestling against God. We are saved by grace through faith. And this is a gift from God. Not of our works that no one may boast. And Jacob, before he was ever born, was going to be the benefactor of God's gracious choice. Verse 24. When her, when Rebecca's days to give birth were completed, behold, as if to say, well, what do you know? There were twins in her womb. God was right after all. And the first came out red. This is when all the ladies are like, oh, please, not me. Right? The first came out red, and all his body like a hairy cloak. Poor Esau. And so they called his name Esau. Afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel. So they came out, boom, boom, and Jacob's holding Esau's heel. So they named him Jacob. Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. Now, first, just an interesting note. Back in verse 7 of Genesis 25, we learned that Abraham lived to be 175 years old. So the boys... Jacob and Esau, they would have actually been about 15 years old when Abraham died. In Genesis, we get the historical account of Abraham's life, and it, and it wraps up in his death, and then it moves on to this next chapter about Isaac's family. But in, in truth, as we even add those two up together, Jacob or Abraham lived into uh, the first 15 years of Jacob and Esau's life. But concerning Esau, the Hebrew word translated as red, or some of your Bibles might say here reddish, this word would have been used to refer to the leather side of a sheepskin that was dyed a brownish-reddish color. So Esau wasn't just red, which is good, right? He wasn't just red, and he wasn't just red-headed, but he was all kinds of hairy, like a reddish-looking sheepskin. And that description of Esau, even right out of the womb, will come in handy in the future when Jacob puts on some goat skins to trick his father. There's also an interesting wordplay on the sound of the Hebrew word for hairy, uh, which is actually where Esau's birth name is derived from. 
The way that that word sounded in the Hebrew with the vowels, the consonants, is, is similar to Esau's name and the word for Harry. And then also, later on, the Edomites, uh, his descendants, would live in a town around Mount Seir. And all of these words came from the same uh, origin. Uh, Jacob's name comes from the Hebrew word for heel. Jacob was grabbing at Esau's heel on their way out in their birth. And the name would have been given to him as a positive statement. They were naming Jacob as one who would protect the heel uh, from the enemy. Or maybe in modern-day terminology, Jacob was the guy who was going to have your back. Later on, though, Esau would come up with a different meaning for this name. It's also interesting that in the Hebrew grammar, the way this is written, Esau's birth is written in a passive way, uh, where Esau was just, he was just born. He just got birthed. He was going with the flow. Whereas Jacob's birth is written in and with action. Jacob was getting after it. He was busy getting stuff done right out of the womb. And these descriptions, their, their actions, their personalities are already on display and starting to develop as we read this account. And it's going to continue to play out in this narrative. Verse 27. When the boys grew up. So if this was a movie, there'd have to be some like musical grow-up montage here, right? The boys are growing up. There's some music. Esau's learning to shoot a bow, and Jacob's working on a computer with a calculator, except they didn't have that back then. And then at the end of the song, they're grown up. The boys grew up. Esau was skillful or a knowledgeable hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man, meaning he was even keeled. He was steady, cool as a cucumber. And in contrast to being a man of the field, Jacob preferred, it says, dwelling in tents. So the contrast continues to develop. And it says in verse 28, Isaac loved Esau because he was a good dad who wanted the very best for his boys. And Wait, that's not what it says, is it? Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game. You keep bringing me that good meat and you're my favorite, buddy. But Rebecca loved Jacob. So favorites. What could go wrong? And do you see these contrasts? Esau, the firstborn, he's a go-with-the-flow, uh, wherever-the-wind-blows kind of a guy, even in his birth. He's hairy. <laughs> he loves the outdoors. He's a hunter. He likes to eat the wild game with his dad. He probably is one of those guys, like, he just loves eating big hunks of jerky, and he wrestles bears, and he sleeps outdoors without a tent with a rock under his head, and howls at the moon, and all that stuff. That's Esau. And then there's Jacob. He's a thinker. He isn't driven by his feelings. His, his definition of camping is, is sleeping in the lodge at the state park. That's about as far as he'll go. He prefers the indoors. Compared to Esau, maybe he looks normal. And, oh, mama loves him best. Maybe she even taught him some of her recipes. We'll have to look at verse 29 here. Once, when Jacob was cooking stew, Esau came in the, from, from the field, and he was exhausted. And before we go any further, this word for cooked, it sounds just like the Hebrew word for hunting. Remember Esau the hunter? Now Jacob has become the hunter. There's a play on words here on purpose. Jacob is the hunter. He's cooking up this trap. And Esau, the hunter, has become the hunted. In verse 30, Esau said to Jacob, this tired, 
tired man of the field coming in exhausted, susceptible to a trap. Let me eat some of that red stew, for I am exhausted. And therefore his name was called Edom, it says. Edom means red. And this name, uh, Edom, is the name that would be given to that nation that came from Edom, the Edomites. And Jacob said, sell me your birthright now. Just came off the top of his head, right? Uh, No, I think he had a plan. Esau said, I'm about to die. What use is the birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. Then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew, and he ate and he drank and he rose and he went his way. Over. It says, thus, that word thus, and just like that, Esau despised his birthright. So we see here, Esau willingly despised the promise of God, and rather flippantly at that. This passage begins and ends in Esau's world, with Esau's way of thinking. That first word, once, as in, uh, there just happened to be this one time when, and then before that fatal last sentence, it says that Esau simply ate and drank and went his way. Just like that, no big deal, it's over. But to Jacob... This was a huge deal. He was prepared. He had planned. He set a trap. He was preying on his brother's impetuous, reckless nature. And he knew exactly what he wanted. He had his eyes on the prize. And this was a legal transaction. It wasn't that uncommon to sell or to barter away your birthright in that time. Uh, Just probably not for a bowl of soup. Hopefully he at least got seconds or something. But even then, it probably wouldn't have been enough. But Jacob was ready. And he even had Esau make this oath. Esau Esau was willing to swear on this. And Esau wasn't about to die. He wasn't going to die. If he had enough time to wait to swear the oath officially, he wasn't about to die. This was him being emotional, the the go-with-the-flow, emotional over-exaggeration stuff. But the way we see him get up and leave... And the way he still expects later on to get his father's blessing as the firstborn, what it looks like is Esau doesn't even to take he doesn't even take into account his own word or take seriously what he's done on this occasion. It's no big deal. I'm just saying stuff. It doesn't mean anything to him. And he still expected later on to get what was supposed to be customarily his later on. Like this never happened which would seem to be in keeping with the way Esau lived his life. Remember, he was a guy that was just a, what matters right now, all that matters right now is how I feel. And there's one thing that Esau did get right about this day, though. He didn't realize it, but it is true. Jacob didn't change his destiny on that day. Jacob did not really change his destiny on that day. From man's perspective, it might look that way. But remember, God had already set in stone according to his sovereign will and gracious choice what was to be. So we know, we know Esau wasn't the hero of the story. We know that Jacob wasn't the hero of the story either. Isaac and Rebekah, they did some good things, but they also played favorites. Uh, They're not perfect, so we, we probably shouldn't make them our heroes either. So then, who is? Who's our hero here? 
who is the one where, at the end of the day, if it hadn't been for him, this account of Jacob and Esau, and while we're at it, the rest of the Bible, and while we're at it, our own lives as well, would be a total wreck, a mess, a disaster. Romans 3 tells us very plainly where we'd be. If we were left to earn our way into the promise of God, if we were left to figure it out, if we had to earn our way into becoming his sons and daughters, in our own fallen condition, Romans 3 says, no one is righteous, no, not one. And on top of that, it says, there is no one who even seeks for God. We have all turned aside. That is us in our natural condition. Praise God for his gracious choice. And if we're to try to make things go on in our own efforts, even after that, our own pursuit of righteousness, Romans 3 continues, verse 21, but, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So if it's apart from that law, certainly we can't make up our own new one and call that good. It says the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ. This is where righteousness is manifested. Uh, through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe, for there's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified, declared not guilty, declared righteous by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And it was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just all sin is paid for. And the justifier declaring us righteous because Christ took our guilt. He might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Just like Jacob could never have earned his way into God's unmerited favor, neither can we. God sent Jesus Christ into this world and Christ lived a perfect and sinless life Jesus, our perfect, spotless sacrifice, died on the cross in our place, taking the wrath of God that we deserve on himself at the cross. And three days later, he rose again, proving that he is exactly who he said he is, proving that his sacrifice was entirely sufficient to satisfy the wrath of God. When Jesus said, it is finished, he was right. Jesus Christ is our hero. So let me please encourage you today. Christian, I hope that our study of this passage today has given you a richer, fuller understanding of the gospel, of God's glorious saving grace that we preach and that we believe. And if you're here today and you've never simply put your faith in the finished work of Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, if up to now you've been trying to work harder and harder, maybe comparing yourself, I'm better or worse than these other people, maybe trying to stack up to the level that you think is suitable and acceptable to God, and remember, that bar is always going to move. If this is you, please know, Jacob never, never earned his place in God's plan. And neither could any of us. Neither will you. Christ paid it all. So put your faith in Christ alone today. Receive God's gift of grace today and be saved. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for these wonderful truths. Thank you for your great kindness to us, your love given to us, your mercy and your grace poured out on us. That as your word says, that you opened our blind eyes and opened our deaf ears that we might hear you gave us a new heart. You've made us a new creation in Christ by your grace. God, thank you. Thank you for your love. I do pray that if there would be someone here who does not know Christ as Lord and Savior, that you would do that very same thing for them. Open their eyes, their ears, change their heart, give them life. Give them eternal life with you. God, I pray for the hearts of your people as we, as we desire good for those around us, as we, as we desire good in our own lives, and we certainly have wishes and desires and plans, and, and we want things to go certain ways in our lives. God, may we rest and trust in you, knowing that we don't have to scheme, we don't have to grab control of it for ourselves to ensure that it's going to go right because we're not even capable of knowing how everything ought to go. May we trust that your ways are not our ways, but that your ways are better than our ways. And that you will do everything that is right and good and true, above and beyond what we would ask or think. God, may we trust you and rest in your goodness and have peace and contentment, able to endure knowing that you have promised not just to save us, you've promised to complete the work of changing us and conforming us into the image of Christ, that you guarantee that sanctification, that your word and your faithfulness would be put on the line in those promises, that we know that Christ is coming again to rule and reign, that you've promised to make us joint heirs, that you've promised to adopt us as sons and daughters, that we will be with you forever, that there will be a new heaven and a new earth and a new Jerusalem. There will be an eternity future in perfect and right fellowship with you with no more sin and no more sickness and no more death. God, may these promises spur us on to love one another, to be patient with one another, to rejoice in you and what you're doing, that we might even suffer with patience and perseverance, because we know you win. And it's not because we figured it out, and it's not because we schemed and planned and hit all the right buttons, but because you're God, and we get to be your people. Lord, may we rejoice in these things alone. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen.